Today we're going to um, observe two men. Two men that were really close to Jesus. Two men that spent three years with Jesus. I mean, two men that really um, that were as close as you could imagine in one sense to the Son of God. They saw Him fully. It, it's, it's a really sad story as we kind of unpack this together, but it's interesting, there's two distinct outcomes with these two men that you will see as we look at this this morning. One was Peter. Peter was like the leading apostle. A lot of times in Matthew, of course, we'll see him speak up and say different things. He is the one that stepped out of the boat and, and went out to meet Jesus and then kind of turned away and began to stink and Jesus pulls him up. He is the one who um, said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, you... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father. But he's also the one just a few verses later who tells Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, uh, this is from Satan. Get behind me, Satan. It's really interesting as you watch Peter being unfolded here before us as we see him. He was at the Mount of Transfiguration. So he was there when Jesus disclosed to them who he was and as the, the prophet and, and the, uh, the one who gave us the law point in a sense to Jesus. Peter was there. Peter is the one who looks up and Jesus says, all of you are going to deny me. And, and Peter says, not me, Lord. You've lost, I mean, this is not right. I will not deny you. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. I will never deny you. And so we see Peter there this morning. We kind of look at him and say, you know what? We've got to kind of get a glimpse of him and see him. But then we also are going to look at Judas. And, and I think Judas, as you look at him, he's the disciple who who again walked with the Lord, he saw the miracles and he saw the wise words that Jesus gave and he saw Jesus' compassion towards those with disease and disorder and all the kind of destruction going on before his eyes. And he is one who is going to betray Jesus and he's there in the moment seeing all of this take place. And Judas is the one that will just go and go to the leaders and say, what will you give me for Jesus? And I'll betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And so he betrays the Son of God. So in this moment, we're going to see that, but you're going to see, first and foremost, the response of these two men. And I think we need to see that because this morning, it's not so much talk about Jesus as it is to response. If you look throughout the study of, uh, of Matthew even, we said as we've gone through, we constantly want to see how are people responding to Jesus. And the question for you this morning is, how do you respond to Him? The reality is, all of us are going to fail. It's not a question of like whether or not we're going to be perfect as Christians you, or as non-Christians. People are going to respond wrongly, whoever they are, to Jesus on many different occasions. But in this story, one ends in tragedy and the other in triumph. And so this morning, actually I was talking to one of our guys here and he said, this is how I'd summarize this. Peter repented trusting in the punishment of Jesus. Peter repented saying, I'm going to trust in the one, only one who can save me. While we look at Judas, Judas on the other hand punished himself. And he took the punishment that he deserved. He inflicted it upon himself. One walks in faith to Jesus, the other walks in unbelief. And, and, and actually, he receives his just payment. The question for you this morning is, and I think it's a question over and over, how are you responding when you fail? How do you respond to Jesus? Are you trusting in Him? Are you clinging to Christ and Christ alone? Or are you trusting in yourself? So this morning as we begin, as we start our study 
together. Let's notice in verse 69. Peter, we go into this story, and we've been watching this unfold. This is right before Jesus is going to go to the cross. It's on Friday morning in the early hours. Jesus has just been arrested, and he's taken to this place, to, to the high priest, um, this courtyard, actually. And then he goes into a place where he's going to stand before these men. And, and Peter is going to follow along, and he's going to get to the edge and go into this place where he can kind of still see what's going on with Jesus. He wants to know what will take place with Jesus. So you notice where he is, and all of a sudden, this servant girl walks up. She walks up to Peter and she asks him, and you'll notice, she says, you also, in verse 69, were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now remember, again, Peter said, I'll never deny you. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. But in this moment, as he's sitting there, he is denying Jesus. Now, it's just important to note, when she says that he is uh, a, a, from Gal, a Galilean, really was known as Jesus of Nazareth sometimes, Galilee is the northern portion of Israel. It's kind of where, um, it's kind of like living in Arkansas. Some of you got people, you know, sadly, you'll have to live in Arkansas. No, I'm just kidding. But it's like living in Arkansas and going to New York City, kind of. It, there is an element, I think, when you think about that, and I was thinking about um, last week because I was with Chandler, and he said, Jared, are you a redneck? That was his question to me. <laughs> and I looked at him, I thought, hmm. And so he said, well, my dad's a redneck, I'm a redneck, Uncle Jonathan's a redneck, are you a redneck? I mean, that's kind of what he was asking me. So I had to think for a moment. I said, you know, I guess I probably am a redneck. And then I asked him, I turned to him, I said, you think Aunt Anna is a redneck? And he wasn't sure what to say about that one because, you know, she's a Floridian. You know how those people, you know, they're kind of Yankees. A lot, anyway, but anyway, as we're thinking about this, well, you can, my accent betrays me. So we're kind of see that as we're moving through this. But ultimately, there's kind of this element to where they knew Jesus had come down from this place, from the place of Galilee, from the place that was kind of not the most sophisticated place, more of a kind of a country environment, not like being in Jerusalem. There was a distinction. He had come into town a few times, but everyone knew that he was there. And so we see Peter denying the Lord in this moment. Now, I just think it's important just to, to see, again, his pride that was going on in him, all this, I'm going to stand for you, Lord. I'm going to do this for you, Lord. In this moment, he is rejecting the Lord. Now, let's keep moving. Verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another, well, I'm going to say one more thing about this. Look in this verse here. He says, I do not know what you mean. Just part of Peter's response. I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you thought about somebody ask a question that you don't want to answer, you might ask them, well, I don't, what, do, what do they really mean? I, I didn't really understand the question. The question wasn't really clear. And so you kind of, it's almost like the first response is, what are they talking about? Who's Jesus? You know, I mean, it's not really answering the issue, but let's keep moving here. Verse 71 and 72. As he moves on out towards the entrance, he is leaving that place. There's this idea where he's sitting with these people and then he's moving out, almost like trying to get out from that situation. You've probably, again, been there before. You know what that's like. You're trying to find your way out of the situation that he's in. And the servant, another servant girl comes up and she said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what Peter says here. He says, with an oath, I do not know the man. Now, there's kind of a progression here. We have to think about, he starts kind of, he's almost like, I don't know what you mean. Now he's saying with an oath, I do not know the man. Now, if you've ever been in court, you know that you make you, you kind of give an oath and you're making, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. 
there's an element to where he is saying, I promise, maybe you say, I promise on my mama's grave or something. You know, you could kind of, you think of people making these big promises. And I, I, I always tell y'all when we look at oaths, I used to say as a child, I promise to God, hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. It was a big deal. I mean, it was saying like, whoa, hold on just a second. I'm serious now. All this joking aside, I know I just said I didn't do it, but I promise I didn't do it. So that you understand, he's, it's heightening this. And so Peter's saying, look, with an oath, I promise. You don't understand. I, didn't, I don't even know him. So you kind of see the progression moving forward. Now, I just want you to note this in your mind. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in that time in history, what would happen a lot of times is they would make promises. And they would say, I promise on the temple's gold. Or I promise on this, and I promise on that. And you almost had to read in that culture the reality that sometimes when they make promise, it wasn't really a promise. It was a way of kind of bypassing a true promise. And Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And in this moment, we see Peter rejecting that and not following the Lord. That's in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus just lays that out for them. Now, keep moving. So Peter, number one, he goes there. There's number two denial. And then the third one, again, it's like escalating. It's like he's tur we're turning up the heat. So you see this in the third. He says, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. So what are they saying? It, he really is that kind of that redneck feel. He, I know where he's from. You are not from here. Everybody's saying they know you. We can hear it in your voice. You're not changing your voice to fit in with Jerusalem dialect, right? And so he's, they're questioning him and pursuing him in this moment. Now, John even tells us that one man, remember what happened in the garden? Peter whipped out the sword and cut the guy's ear off. You remember that? Well, he talks about that there's this, there's this one man there, John tells us, that was like, a cousin of the high priest's servant, the one that Peter cut off his ear, and he's like, I was in the garden. I saw you, dude. I mean, I saw you whip out the sword and whack off the ear. Like, we know this. So he's kind of questioning as he's looking at that, and you kind of understand what's going on, and Peter's like, he's thinking, good night. What do I need to do now? How am I going to get out of this now? So notice what he says. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, what does it mean to invoke a curse? I, I was thinking about this week because I, I thought about, well, how would you talk about that? One of the things that happened, like when people would make a covenant, back in the, uh, in the, you know, when you look at the scripture, you see different covenants made. Sometimes they would take an animal and they would cut the animal in half. And they would lay one side here, lay the other side here. And the two parties that were making like this agreement, they're walking together through those animals. And basically what they're saying is, look, we make this agreement, and if I break this, may God like strike me like this animal. May God like split me open and kill me, right? And so as you're moving in this text, it's almost as if in a way he's saying, look, may God curse me if I'm lying about this. You don't understand. He's intensifying it. Each time he's saying it's like greater and greater and greater denial. It's kind of like sin. You know, you always sin... And you kind of think it gets greater and greater. It's almost like it starts as something small and it builds. It's like this. It's like a snowball rolling down. It's growing. And so Peter's going to stand up and say, look, may God curse me if I'm telling a lie. Pretty powerful statement as he is moving forward through this text. And notice what it says. 
and immediately the rooster crowed. Now, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, look, you understand that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And in that moment, Peter's reminded of this, but I want you to listen to something from Luke chapter 22, because we're going to look at verse 75, but look at Luke, you don't have to turn there, but just listen, and you can write this in your notes. Luke 22, 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Somehow in that moment, Peter has been denying the Lord and denying the Lord and denying the Lord. And maybe the Lord had even heard him say, I do not know him because he, he was so angry, almost like portraying this idea, I do not know him. And all, the, all in that moment, Peter just happens somehow to turn and look and he's face to face with Jesus. And he sees Jesus there. He knows he's condemned to death. And then that moment, he thinks, oh my word. And then the cock crows. And then he knows, I have denied the Lord just as he said. Now notice what it says. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's an intensity here of his weeping, of his crying out. He is so mourning over what he has done, how he's rebelled against the Lord. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. In verse 32, because I want you to see something I think that's really kind of helpful to see in this moment. In Matthew 10, 32. Jesus has spoken to His apostles before about their coming struggle and how facing they're going to face great difficulty as they follow the Lord. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Then he lays out and he says, look, this is going to be trouble in the whole family unit. There's going to be great struggle. You may be betrayed by the closest person in your family. You may be uh, denied and rejected and taken to the courts really by someone in your family. Verse 38 and 39, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I'm sure in that moment that Peter has to be reminded of the things that the Lord has said, and there's certainly a brokenness thinking, I'm, I'm doing the greatest thing of denial. I'm rejecting the Lord. Now, we might say, look, it's not the pattern of Peter's life. Later, we know that Peter will die for the faith. He's going to stand for the Lord. He's going to walk with the Lord. But he's going to fail along the way. But I just want you to see that because it's at the very heart of what Jesus says. Your allegiance to me is primary. It's above all things. You are to, be, you are to align yourself with me. And I just want you to see exactly what's taking place with Peter in this moment and what he might have been feeling as he thinks about it. Now, turn back to your passage that we're looking at in Matthew 26. I just want to read a couple of things to you because I want you to think with me just for a moment. John Calvin says this, the fall of Peter is a mirror of human infirmity and a memorable example of God's goodness and compassion. He goes on to say that Peter entered into the court knowing that Jesus had just said, you're going to fail. And he went in anyway thinking he would stand alone and stand for himself. Notice what this is what else he says. He, John Calvin says, Often thus under the appearance of virtue do believers fling themselves into temptation, 
Conscious weakness should not hinder us from going to wherever God calls us, but it ought to restrain rashness and stimulate prayer. He is saying, look, that is the tendency of us. That's the way of man. It, we, are, we are fallible, and so we should constantly be crying out, oh God, deliver us from temptation. Rescue us. And we remember Peter sleeping in the garden rather than crying out to God to give him strength to be delivered in this time. And we see that taking place. Calvin also said, he who has thrown away the fear of God. And here's what he's saying. He's saying Peter in that moment had stopped saying, what does Jesus say here? What is Jesus trying to tell me before I enter into this temptation? He's saying, watch and pray. He's saying, Peter, you're going to struggle. You're going to fail. And he, he was not fearing God in that moment. He says, the more respected one is, the more he should be careful because he can, cannot fall from a high place without damaging others. Peter had a really high responsibility. Setting before others, he was the leader of, of, of the people, uh, the, really the disciples in this moment, and you see him fail and him fall. Now, I'm going to throw out a few more things to you just kind of help you think this through. Because I really, this week, uh, Martin Luther, I read something about what he had said about this passage, and I want you to hear this today. He says, no article of the creed is so hard to believe as this, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Last week, we read that creed together. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And he's saying here, there's nothing more difficult to believe than that God would forgive our sins. But he says, notice what he says, but look at Peter. If I could paint a portrait of Peter, I would write on every hair of his head, forgiveness of sins. Because in that moment, what did Peter need? What did Peter need? He had, he had denied the Lord. He had abandoned the Lord. He needed the forgiveness of God. We see in Peter's story as we progress, and we're going to look at that further, the forgiveness of God. There, there is this struggle in us. We are much more weak than we think. And we do battle with sin. And we do fail in our sin. And our only hope in that moment is to cry out to God, Lord, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. I believe that You respond to those who turn in repentance and trust You for salvation. That is my only hope. And really, as a believer, you keep doing that, and you keep doing that, and you keep doing that. Peter is a picture for all of us to see. Every day, we deny. There is an element where I believe every day, every time I get frustrated to a point of just just an anger and bitterness kind of rises up within me. I'm not really responding to the Lord's rule and sovereignty in my life. Every day that I go on living as if I can control my destiny and I'm not crying out in prayer, I am revealing a denial of the Lord. Every time I abandon the people of God and go to live my life separate from them and not serving them and loving them, there's an aspect of denying my Lord. And I must keep coming back in brokenness and repentance and trust in Him. Let's keep moving. As you move forward, as we're looking at verses 1 and 2, you see Jesus is now with the chief priests and the elders. They took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they lead Him away and they deliver Him to Pilate, the governor. Just, just to see that in that moment, you're trying to notice like right after Jesus and Peter's eyes meet, now He is going to be carried forward so that He might be crucified on the cross. They are delivering Him over to death. You see in this the Jewish leaders 
complete rejection of God's Messiah, it's not just talking about it anymore. They are carrying Him to the place where He will be put on the cross. Again, seeing their rebellion against the, the Lord. Their rebellion against Him, but Jesus again going willingly to the cross. Now, we're looking at all this kind of moving forward to Judas because I want you to see that with me this morning. In verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, what's going on with Judas? Judas has been thinking about uh, for a long period of time or some period of time, evidently, about how he can get out of the situation and he decides that I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to turn away from Jesus. He's already gone, find out about the 30 pieces of silver. They said they'll pay him. He goes and does it. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. He betrays him in a way where he's kind of showing like fellowship and friendship and then he kisses him. It's the kiss of betrayal we talk about all the time. Sometimes you might even hear somebody say they're like Judas. That person's like Judas. Judas forever kind of goes down in history as one who is a betrayer, as one who delivers other people over as a liar and, and a thief and all these things that we see in Judas and in his life. Now, the idea here, when Judas sees what's taking place, what does he do? The Scripture says he changes his mind. It's not what's normally used for repentance. It's a word that it's a lot lighter than that. It's not necessarily repentance that's taking place here. It's more of a feeling of guilt. He sees what he's done. And he even says, he's not saying, I've turned away from the Son of God. I have rejected the Messiah. I have betrayed and delivered over Jesus, the, the ruler of the universe, the King of kings. It's, I, I've betrayed innocent blood. And I think it's important to note that there's an element to where he sees his sin, but it's not so much that Jesus is sin against God, but as much as it is to sin against innocent blood. And I think it's just important to note that as you see what is taking place. Now, what happens as he's moving through this? What's he going to lift up his eyes to? What's he going to trust in, in this moment? And that's what we're going to see as we're moving throughout this text. So let's move forward in verses 4 and then we go into 5. They said, now notice what he does. He comes back and he shows up and he's going to say, look guys, I've done wrong. And this is what they're going to say to him. What is that to us? The religious leader says, see to that yourself. Go figure it out on your own. It, that's not our deal. You made the, the, the deal with us. You've done it. You sinned against innocent blood. We're not all about that. Just be quiet. We don't want to hear from you. You go handle it on your own. And so he throws in these pieces of silver into the temple and he departed and went and hung himself. Now, what's going on here? In this moment, what is Judas trusting in? What's he trusting in? He feels the guilt of his sin of betraying innocent blood. And what does he run to? He thinks in his mind, what can I do to get rid of my guilt? What can I do to get rid of the sin that I've committed? What can I do to get rid of those things that are haunting me? What should I do in this moment? Where does he lift his eyes up? He doesn't. He looks into his own mind and thinks, how can I silence the, the evil that I've done? How can I get rid of this? What does he do? He takes his own life. The Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. 
And he got it. He's like a almost like a parable to us. What is the road of sin and death leading to? Or of sin leading to? It's leading to death. Peter, I mean, uh, Judas is this example of that in this moment. You see him trusting in himself. He is left with nothing but himself, and he thinks the only way that I can get off this, get this off of me, off of my chest, you might say, is to take my own life. I deserve punishment, so therefore I will punish myself. I will destroy myself. It is not for the wages of sin is death, but it's as if he didn't hear the but. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus my Lord. The wages of sin is death. I'll inflict death upon myself. The truth is, is that we are called upon not to stay there, to recognize that, but to trust in the One who gave His life for us. He is a story that is very difficult to see. It's the greatest tragedy. He decided to take His own life to give Himself early punishment for what He deserved instead of trusting in Jesus. Now wherever you are today, I promise you there will come days where you'll look at your life and you'll think, I know what I deserve. I know what I deserve. I deserve death. I have sinned greatly. You may have felt that before. And the only hope you have is not in yourself and not what you can trust in, but it's to trust in Christ. Now look at verse 6-10. through 10. There's just a few more things here that we're going to look at before we kind of conclude this and summarize kind of Judas and Peter. Notice what these chief priests do. They see that Judas has thrown the silver in. It's kind of, it kind of cracks me up because what we've seen all the way through is that they major on the minor. So in their minds, the bigger deal is to go and do something else with this 30 pieces of silver rather than put it back in their treasury. They say, well, we got to do something else with this because, you know, it's not right to, uh, to take that blood money and put it in the temple of God even though they're the ones that are like sending Jesus to his death. It's like it's a crazy thing. You're thinking, what do you mean? Man, you're just you just watch, you're saying, like, go take him to Pilate and let's see if we can stir up the crowd and get him killed. But in this moment, they're like, well, those little pieces of silver, we better make sure and do something different. So notice what takes place here. So they took counsel together. Let's try to make sure we let's clean this mess up. They take counsel together and decide to buy a potter's field and a burial place for strangers. And they do this, and, and really, notice what verse 8 says, Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them, uh, gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed them. Now, here's the thing. This is one of more difficult kind of passages that like it's going to be picked up in the in the Old Testament and brought into the New. It's kind of interesting because he says it comes from Jeremiah. If you were to go back and do a little bit of study, I'm just going to give you a couple of things. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but write these verses down. It's Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13. We are seeing kind of the more. This is like the closest kind of representation you would think. That, that Matthew would bring up Zechariah. So the, 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 when we're quoting this text of fulfillment. Also, you just write down Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 19. But all of those are kind of texts that are going to talk about a potter's field and going to talk about 30 pieces of silver. And it's almost like Matthew in this moment is going to pull those together. It's been done in the New Testament before. Sometimes when the writers would do it, they would pull the stronger prophet, Jeremiah, one of the major prophets in, and kind of attribute the whole statement to to Jeremiah, which in reality is probably even closer to a statement from Zechariah. So 
Just kind of see that. Now, let's think about what's going on just real quick in that text. Zechariah and Jeremiah, if you know much about them as prophets, they were really good prophets. They were God's prophets. They were speaking on behalf of God. They were shepherding the people of God. Both of them were rejected. There's times where Jeremiah was walking through the streets and they were throwing human waste on Jeremiah as he was preaching along the way. There were so many things that kind of they faced and they were like solid and faithful prophets of God. And really not, not very different from what takes place with Jesus as you see Him as this great servant of God. And He's serving the people of God and He's telling them the truth and He's bringing wisdom and He's calling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and He's calling them to trust in Him. Right? So you see that kind of connection between those two. Now what happened in Zechariah 11 was Zechariah there finally gets to this point where they've kind of rejected him as prophet and he says, you pay me whatever you want. And so they give him 30 pieces of silver, which was nothing for all that he had done for Israel. And he tosses it back to them. And in the picture with Jeremiah, what you see is one time God says, Jeremiah, go buy a pot. And then you, you just you smash that pot. And it's a picture of like Israel rejecting you and rejecting my words and rejecting me and bringing judgment on themselves. So both of those things are kind of taking place in this text. And I think it's just important to note that God is sovereignly working with Jeremiah and Zechariah as they are faithful servants of God, just as He is working in this moment. And even though they're rejecting Jesus in this moment like they reject the prophets, God is working through this. They hate Him and kill Jesus, but He will be the Savior of the world. And so I just kind of throw that out to kind of give that to you as we go. And now let's kind of move into a couple more things before we conclude. When we're looking at Peter and Judas, the two kind of primary people you might say in the story, you've got to ask the question how did Jesus respond to these men? What did he do with them? Because really, we have to ask the question of, what is Jesus doing in this moment with these men as He's facing that? I'm going to read a couple of passages for Peter. Note, this is what he says. He says, look, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. That's what he told Peter in this moment. And he says this, though, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's this idea, though. Jesus is saying, look, Satan is coming after you. You are going to face great temptation and you are going to fail, maybe you would say, in the battle. But I pray that you don't lose the war. You're not going to lose it because I have prayed for you. I'm going to hold you. Who, who do you want praying most for you in all the world? I would like to take Jesus' prayer over all your prayers. Don't know that? Because Jesus, when He prays, He always prays according to the will of God. We see Jesus taking Peter and saying, you're going to fail. You're going to struggle in this moment. You are going to kind of be defeated in this moment. But when you have returned, I will use you to strengthen your brothers. And He's going to use him greatly. So that Jesus' prayer is seen as a great high priest who is upholding Peter in this moment. Did you know that Peter, like Jesus came... And he individually, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he visited Peter. He, he visited Peter after his resurrection and he visited him like individually. There's this idea of restoration that must have taken place in that moment. Another text that we see with, with Jesus and Peter, Jesus comes to the place and he comes to this place where Peter is out fishing with all the other disciples. 
Jesus shows up and John says, oh, that's Jesus up there. And Peter like dives into the water and goes as fast as he can to Jesus. And as he gets to him, Jesus begins to interact with him. So just listen to what he says. In John chapter 21, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to say, Peter, there's going to come a day, and John cites this, where you will give yourself for me. Peter is not going to deny in the end. His life will be characterized by faithfulness. In, in, in church history, many people have always said, Peter, he, he laid down his life for the Lord and he did not want to be crucified Straight up, he wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be to be crucified in that way. Peter, in church history, people have forever said Peter died a martyr's death for our Lord. Now, Peter's life ends up in being forgiven and faithful. Peter hopes in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. He loves the Lord. Now we know by God's grace, He's empowered him for that. The truth tells us, I mean, the Scripture tells us that over and over. Just like Jesus said, I'm going to hold on to you, Peter. It's not just Peter's might that held him. It's the, the, the Lord of the universe held on to Peter and He used Peter in a mighty way. Peter came again and he trusted in the Lord and he trusted in the salvation of the Lord alone. Judas, on the other hand, if we were to look at Judas' life and you look at all the different texts that are going on, Jesus said, one of you will betray me, but woe to the man. It would have been better that he would never have been born than he betray the Lord. The Scripture says that Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who was called from a number of the twelve. He was among the twelve. He had been in his heart, was already, it says, wanting to betray Jesus. And Satan, again, just provided him that opportunity. You see his heart away from the Lord, not following after the Lord. Jesus just tells him what is about to take place. In John 17, when Jesus is praying, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. When we look at that, we know that Peter can't look up and say, look how great I was. I held on to myself. Look how great my faith is. What we see is Jesus' work on His behalf, not only saving Him from His sins by dying on the cross, but praying for Him before He ever entered into temptation that He might return and come back. We see Jesus' active pursuit of Him, but we see Peter in repentance and, and crying out and, and seeing his sin and running to the Savior. We see Him falling at His feet and the Lord drawing Him into His fold. And so we see both God's divine action on His behalf and Peter's faith and trust in Christ alone. Peter is a picture of what it means to repent and trust in the Lord. Judas is a picture of what it is to see your sin and to try to trust in yourself to fix it. Both of those we see in this moment. I'm going to read one last thing to you as we kind of conclude this morning. 
when Paul is writing to the people in 2 Corinthians, he's longing for them to repent. He is not... He doesn't just want them to feel bad because, you know, kind of like when you were a kid and you got caught and you're like, oh, my dad's about to beat me. And so I start crying my eyes out. Not like that's what I would do when we all start crying. Oh, dad, just like lighten up. Don't come after. You know, we were just scared. I wasn't really like I still wanted to break the rules. I just didn't want to get caught. But in this moment, when when he's writing to them, he's, he's saying, I hope that you see true repentance. And notice what. In 2 Corinthians, just listen to this. In verse 9 it says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In my mind, if you were to put those two, you would say Peter had a godly grief, a God-oriented grief, a Spirit-empowered grief that caused him to repent and trust in Jesus alone for his salvation, to run back to Jesus and to cry out in confession, Lord, I've sinned against you. While you see in this moment, Judas, he feels bad for what he's done, but it leads to death. He takes his own life. He is not trusting in the righteousness of Christ, what he has done for him and the salvation that comes through him. He is trusting in himself. I'm not convinced that in this room that everyone here has experienced true repentance. A genuine change of heart where God transforms your heart from a, from a trusting in yourself to trusting in Jesus. I, I'm not convinced that that is true. I'm, I'm convinced that often among the people of God, Judas was three years with Jesus. I mean, some of you, we've been together for two years. You've heard the Word of the Lord. You've seen Matthew unfold and unpack the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear week after week after week. And you wonder, has God really changed your heart? Are you trusting in Christ alone, in His righteousness for you? Are you trusting in the salvation that comes through Him? Has He cultivated in your heart this truth that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? And have you embraced that Savior? Some of you today are believers and for a long time you think I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But in reality, when you find yourself denying the Lord, you begin to, to, to almost inflict pain upon yourself. Maybe you go alone and you're sitting by yourself and you come up with all these different ways of how you can try to make yourself right with God. You are not trusting in the Lord. You're not experiencing a right kind of repentance. That, that brings hope. That allows you to turn from your sin and hope again in the Savior. The reason we do this worship guide every week that says you're a sinner and Christ is your only hope is because as a believer or an unbeliever, I need to hear that over and over and over again. This picture for us this morning is a picture of our condition and the only hope is to run to Christ week after week after week. And I would just encourage you, I think as you see Peter's life move forward, he becomes more watchful, more humble, more aware of his fallen condition, more in love with Jesus because of what he's done to rescue him. 
It's just this growing process as he prays and submits to God's direction and spends time with the Lord and regularly gets with other believers and repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus. That's just the pattern that you're going to see as it grows and grows and grows. I just encourage you this morning, wherever you are, I pray that by God's grace, you would respond rightly to His mercy to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ who saved us from our sins. Present, past, and future. Lord, we know in this story of Matthew that Jesus is going to the cross not because we could fix ourselves, because we can only be transformed by Christ and His work for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has failed miserably before the Lord, but is not running to the Savior, I pray that they would so that they might see the fruitful joy of experiencing transformation in Christ and Christ alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.